Welcome to the Out of the Woods Podcast. The top five headlines threat hunters need to be thinking of this week. Hey everyone, welcome to another edition of the Out of the Woods Threat Hunting Podcast. This is Scott Poley here with Mike Mitchell. In this yes. weekly segment, Future, we're going to talk about the top five stories that threat hunters need to be thinking about, as well as the thoughts on the subject and some hunting strategies. So let's dive into those top five threat hunting headlines for the week of November 14th, 2022. All right. So Mike, I'll kick it off. I've got one um, that I just thought was really interesting. Actually, when I scroll through my LinkedIn stuff, it came up that way. But the headline is from IT News. Um, and it's Australia sets up a hundred strong permanent operation to target hackers. This was just interesting to me because I remember when I started in cybersecurity, this is what I envisioned I would be doing as a defender, like actively going after, you know, hackers and trying to like hack them back and do whatever before I really understood what it really meant. Right. Um, so super cool idea, but man, it's kind of a scary thing because it's not that easy. Right. So like, for instance, you know, you, sometimes you have some countries that kind of harbor attackers that kind of protect them. That's why they operate out of certain countries. So, you know, when you start going after them, does that mean there might be some repercussions because it'd be touching, you know, that country's infrastructure and things potentially from the, you know, cyber side? Or could there, depending on what you actually do in your operation, could there be bleed over that affects, you know, kind of like casualties of war, but casualties of IT, right? Like you use similar data centers, similar infrastructure, because attackers use the mainstream stuff to kind of hide in the weeds as well. You, you'd hate to bring down someone else's services or have some bad effects that way. Um, right. So, you know, th there was that that kind of came to mind. And I was thinking, you know, you know, some of the best things I guess they could do, you know, obviously they're collecting intel on people to maybe help extradite people, but, you know, that we already do in general to try to counteract some of this stuff. I mean, obviously disrupting money, making opportunities, you know, if you can get rid of the financial gain avenues in some aspects, maybe that would have an impact. And then you could try, like I mentioned, you could try to disrupt some of their infrastructure, but that just crosses a lot of lines that, you know, could cause a lot more problems and issues. Right. Yeah, this is interesting. I think I have the same thought process. I know before I got into cybersecurity, I wanted to potentially go like FBI or, you know, knock on guys' doors and, and have the technical, the cyber, and like the physical part of the security process. When I got into the industry, I found out how hard attribution actually is, right? How to actually track the person doing the bad thing. Um, and again, with cloud infrastructure, shared IP space, uh, you know, it's really hard to take activity that somebody's doing and attribute to the actual person, especially if you're getting to the point where they're already in the process of attacking organizations and businesses where they're probably set up in a way that they can potentially move around and hide and change some of those ephemeral type things like IOCs and domains. And that's why we always talk from a hunting perspective. It's hard to focus on indicators of compromise if you're, if you're really looking at protecting your infrastructure and going after the bad guy, because those things change all the time. It's the behavior of the the actor and the person that matter, right? And so I'm curious to see how this operates, um, especially because it is Australia's group. Are they doing this at a global scale um, where people might not be in Australia, right? They're gonna have to have some collaboration and partnership with government agencies across the world to really Absolutely. make uh, an effort, 
unless you have localized groups that are going to like, I don't know, internet cafes, just a thing or forums where you can track that ISP to that individual's, you know, house or location and get them that way. But I appreciate the effort. I'm curious to see how this actually is going to play out, especially for Australia, especially for that country, right? I, I don't imagine there being a high number of hackers per capita there because it's so right. spread out, right? um, unless you have it in those city centers. So I, I think there needs to be some, definitely if there's the ability to increase attribution across these type of people. And it seems like a lot of times there's not, there's not, you know, if I go hack something, I'm not really worried about somebody knocking on my door and coming to get me. I would imagine, right? So that could put a little bit of, of fear into these people to to make them mm -hmm. stop doing it. But, and this is, I, I guess, a step in the right direction. So, yeah, I'd be curious if they come out with like something down the road about success stories, you know, like, mm -hmm. you know, the good and the bad of the, this kind of operation. But, right. I guess we'll see. Right. Outside of just a, an online cease and desist, right? There needs to right. be some sort of like uh, consequences for doing this type of work. And that should be somebody knocking on your door and you're getting arrested, right? So, and, I, and real quick, I think they said they wanted to hack the hackers was a quote in right. this, which I feel like we should probably talk about a little bit because there there have been some opportunities where people would, would set up canary tokens and, you know, try to actually hack the hackers that are hacking you. But I would love to understand the success stories around that type of activity as well, right? Mm -hmm. um, I would imagine that just puts a bigger target on your back. I don't know if you've, yeah. you've seen that in the wild or, or what, but. No, I mean, we always try to do some operations like that so we can tell, like, track when data is leaving the environment with the canary tokens and things like that. So if something were to get pulled off your, you know, file share or something like that, you can see now something's beaconing back and you know it was taken from that location. So we've, we've definitely played with those types of things. And that's just kind of cool from an Intel perspective too, but, you know, how to, then turn around and actually have an impact other than you just now know something that's right. where it gets interesting from an operational standpoint. Yeah. Uh, cool. Yeah. So the next article um, comes from the hacker news uh, and it's the title is over 15,000 WordPress sites compromised in malicious SEO campaign. Really interesting article. Um, a lot of this was centered around the ability for these hackers to, and, and I think in this article, it said they would manipulate up to a hundred files per website to really drive the redirect on official websites over to kind of fake Q&A, just scam sites, right? So it's just about getting access into this WordPress environment, manipulating the files to redirect to your site to drive up traffic, um, potentially make those sites that you're trying to deploy more official from an SEO perspective, which means as you're Google searching for something, it just drives the popularity up. I don't know of anybody that goes to Google page five or six. I mean, a lot of times you're gonna, if you Google something, it's not on that first page, you know, maybe the second page, but you're not deep diving into like the depths of Google to find things. And that's where a lot of these sites sit, right? Cause they don't have the, they're not in the algorithm to be presented immediately on Google. Um, but what was interesting at the end of the article, they kind of talk about all this and then they say, it's not clear how the websites were breached, WordPress were breached. A little frustrating, right? So for like from a hunting perspective, cool, this is happening, but I think it, it, it matters to understand what the, the, the method of mm -hmm. uh, 
intrusion was, right? Because it's kind of hard to protect something that you don't know how they're getting in. Um, so be, again, it's interesting to maybe follow this article, follow this this threat method um, to see where this ends up. But um, you got any thoughts on this article? Yeah, so I thought it was crazy that, you know, people are doing this. Now it, it does, it could be something where it's just testing and validating, like, you know, how does this work and what can we do to manipulate this? Or it could be the precursor to some things. Cause I know a lot of times we've used reputation enrichment as a way to try to block bad things. Obviously people use categories and things like that, but when something isn't categorized, that's a, a good way to just, you know, straight block it. Um, either yep. because it's, it's just too new. So it doesn't have a category, which a lot of bad sites get spun up really fast and don't, don't live very long so they don't have time to have a reputation or category or right. it's just a very unpopular site in general which sometimes you can right. Right. poorly made old school website so it really doesn't have business impact you know in those cases um so that was always a really good kind of control um that this theoretically could help circumvent right you know if, if yep. so there was a malicious site that they wanted to make you know available past all the categorization stuff yeah make it really popular make it get categorized you know have mm -hmm. some history there but I did dig into, um, well, you know, one of the the links on that article page, and it took me to, I guess, where they were kind of driving some of this information. It was the public www.com, and it, I guess you can search for different things, and it shows where it exists on different websites. And the thing they call out in the search was the ois.is. Right. I don't know if that was what was being redirected to, but there were 16,899 web pages redirecting to that or calling that. Um, so that might be associated as far as something to look at, but it's just an interesting technique all around. I mean, if they didn't have exploits to get this access to these sites, you know, only thing I can think of is either brute forcing, credential stuffing type stuff, or they had possible um, phishing that was able to then do credential grabs to, to log in officially to these sites to administer them if, if they had that kind of access. So, you know, multi-factor and things like that are important, but yeah, it was, it was kind of weird. There's that many sites that were impacted, and there's no signs of how they got that stuff there. So, yeah, um, and yeah, that's a really good point. And it, it it makes it seem like I think they said that this could have been breached by just a bunch of brute force against the admin passwords of WordPress. But for that many sites to be affected, and for that many sites to redirect to that particular site that you called out, it seems like somebody had access for a long time. And I'd be curious to see what that that site is and what I mean. I I didn't click it. I didn't really dive in from a malicious or a, a malware kind of sandboxing perspective. But yeah, the, so there was nothing like bad asset landing page. I didn't dig in further because you know I didn't expect to find anything, but just you know stuff. Yeah, yeah. it's just that's that's a very that's that number is very high, right? Right. Like that's a lot. Right. Um, it seems like the, the a single actor probably has had that access to WordPress for a very long time. Yeah, but we can move on. What you got next, Scott? Yeah, so I got a, a meaty one that I was going to dig into, and I thought it was really interesting, but it was on the Hacker News, um, and it was the Warwick hackers abused Dropbox API to exfiltrate data via backdoor hidden in images. Mm -hmm. um, and this basically is uh, the Warwick group which you know is associated more with cyber criminal you know uh, type role when you kind of mark that adversary. But he was using PNG files to conceal their payloads that basically allowed them to have like kind of a command and control 
data dump and collection type capabilities all via using Dropbox APIs is kind of like that function. Um, so digging into some of the attack details, there was actually a suspect that this was uh, a result of the proxy shell for a lot of the compromises, they think, for the initial mm -hmm. access. And then the, this specific malware, they had to gain administrative access before deploying this um, based on some of the techniques they actually used. So when looking at it, they use a lot of DLL side loading and they yeah. actually targeted the uh, session environment uh, service DLL and the IKE EXT service, which is there's three DLLs that are associated with basically remote desktop configuration and the Ike auth IP, IPsec keying modules. And it, they're popular for DLL side loading because a lot of times those DLLs don't actually exist. So there's services set up to use them, but the DLLs aren't present. Um, but for you to do the side loading technique, you have to drop the DLLs in the system 32 folder, which is a protected folder. That's why they suspect you have to have that administrative access already. But if you're able to do that, you're able to run what you want. So that was one of the ways they were able to kind of get that initial foothold to get things to execute. And they did the same thing if they had some targeted VMware machines. Uh, they did a similar DLL hijacking, but they targeted the vmguest-lib.dll. Um, basically, it will actually look at the program files environment directory where that DLL is supposed to be, but for whatever reason now it installs in system 32 in a protected area. So just by search order, if you put it in the program files environment versus the system 32, it actually loads that first. So another another way to take advantage of that, but you know, typical DLL hijacking side loading type uh, capabilities. So that's how they kind of kicked everything off. So, you know, if you're looking for things, always look for any DLLs being created, especially in System32, and then you could target those specific names for those DLLs when um, you dig into that article. And then they, the PNG stuff, you know, I, I took a Stego class back in the day um, where we had to, you know, do all different types of analysis as well as, um, you know, you know, create things. Um, and, you know, they're basically using steganography and the PNGs and they're using the least significant bit. So if you're not familiar with that, that basically is saying if you have a byte of data, which is, you know, the value from zero to 255 for, say, the color black, you know, they're changing the least significant bit value, which is, you know, the, the smallest one that just changes it by one. So instead of it being like 253 is 252 to the human eye, it doesn't really change the color much but you can store data across multiple bytes that way. And that's kind of what they're doing. And that's how you're able to hide things in images. It's kind of the, the, the base of that. Um, but what's really kind of cool is they didn't just do that. They also XOR encrypted the data. So that kind of an obfuscation that's hard coded in their PNG loader, which is part of the malware. And then it's gzipped data once you, once you XOR it all out. So they did a lot of obfuscation of the data. So, you know, your typical antivirus type stuff's not going to find it one alert on it. They said they had some firings on things, but probably just because something was a little weird if it if it's doing some uh, like ML type stuff. Um, so that's kind of how it works with loading the malware out of there. And then the other thing to really look for, and, they, and they, those files are also being dropped in the program files, Internet Explorer directory, which is kind of common for most images. You know, you're browsing the Internet, Internet Explorer, you know, we're going to have image files dropped. So that's kind of hard to pick up on. But the Dropbox API stuff, so any kind of calls of the Dropbox API might be worth looking at, um, especially if you don't use Dropbox as far as your business. And it's pretty easy because it's dropboxapi.com for pretty much every single call. It's going to be that domain. Um, and they're primarily focusing on file downloads, uploads, file deletes, and get file lists. 
And then there's a list of commands, which are standard for different types of command and control, where it's, you know, running commands, upload, delete, rename, view, that kind of stuff. Um, nothing significant there. But something that the note is in that same directory for the IE Explore stuff, there is the IE proxy.dat file. And that's actually the file they create to kind of hide in there that contains the API key they use, the interval which it checks the, the disk for the Dropbox to know when like how often to call out basically, and then the up and down time of the box. And it does, it sounds like it is encrypted, that dot dat, but if you have, there is an iExplore.log and apparently all the actions that API is doing with those calls uh, is being logged there in plain text. So you can see all the plain text API keys and everything you know from that point. So an easy way to dig in. Yeah. Like you're gonna say something, Mike? Yeah, so that's what I was gonna ask. I think I asked this question last week. With a lot of these C2 calls to services like Dropbox, um, MegaShare, whatever it is, right? And you have these endpoints that you're hitting, really good to search on from a kind of a, a static signature heuristic perspective to say, look, if you see anything to these endpoints, maybe flag it. The thing I'm always interested in, I haven't like dove in, but you need typically some sort of authentication to these services. And so right. if these actors, I'm curious if they're setting up a different Dropbox account for every victim that they're they're going after. So it's it's a unique kind of name spacing within Dropbox, or if they're storing it all within that one account that has like all of the victim data. There has to be some sort of authentication into those services. So right I'm in this case, there were like there were two that they are identifying. Yeah, but wouldn't that allow you to also authenticate in and look at everything that they've they've dropped into Dropbox, right? To try to you know, it, yeah, yeah. So I, I'm guessing these security researchers, as they're breaking down this malware, and I don't know, I don't know if they've actually gotten access to those API keys and actually can see what they're they're dropping in a Dropbox or these external services. That'd be the thing I'd be really interested in playing around with to, to understand yeah, how they, they're they, obfuscating that that data. They mentioned the victimology portion on on like the article I linked from that article, and they basically were saying it looked like it was not hitting a lot of people. Um, and I'm guessing they're able to assume that based on maybe looking at some of those API keys like you're talking about and and right. looking. But, you know, there's there's also legal laws where just because someone steals your data, you can't go into their stuff and steal it back because it's considered hacking as well. So it kind of gets weird. I know. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, back to the other topic. But yeah. So but it's cool that you can kind of dig into that. And and so, like I said, you're looking at those Dropbox API calls. It's kind of a. And the interval that was set, they were able, they were showing in the the data was like 300 seconds. So you know, about every 300 seconds is calling out. I mean, that kind of gives you an idea for how noisy or how how noisy you expect this to be, um, just with their standard default stuff. But then they did actually capture what are the most common commands run from this C2 because they can execute things. And one was a rar.exe with you know the flags to basically rar up any doc, docx, xls. PDFs, like your typical documents that you would steal um, that are commonly used in Microsoft Office. And then EdderCap, they were actually dropping EdderCap and running the EdderCap EXE with, you know, the flags to basically look at ARP requests to kind of sit in the middle and see if you can steal credentials to do more more things. Right. Um, so obviously looking for EXE has been written to directories that aren't program files or System32, you know, OS specific. It's a good thing to look at. And obviously EdderCap and RAR, they didn't change the name of the files and they dropped them. They just ran them. And like I said, like APIs that were actually tied to two Chinese accounts, 
So, you know, attribution, yeah, you can kind of say maybe it's, it's related to that, but they did say the, the code seemed poor at best because a lot of times when you're able to look at code, once you get access to it, how it's structured kind of tells you how it was made. You know, a lot right. of people will copy and paste things, right, um, to build code. But when you start seeing no, duplicate code, it, yeah, no, right? <laughs> yeah, I was a comp sci guy. <laughs> yep. But yeah, they uh, had duplicate code throughout the code, right? And usually if you have multiple, you know, the same code, multiple places, it's kind of just poor coding practice or just lazy, right? So, you know, it kind of shows the sophistication potentially that, you know, you really did it with them. I and they're using some cool techniques, but it didn't seem overly sophisticated. Yeah. So yeah, that was my big deep rundown. I don't know if you have anything else to add. No, not really. I mean, it seems like there's a lot you can look for from a hunting perspective. Um, that's why I love these articles and these breakdowns that these researchers do, because it really does allow you to think through the process without having to, it basically sets it up on a tee for you to be able to kind of think about it from a hunting perspective. So, and, and there's a lot you can do just from an internal infrastructure security perspective, right? If you don't allow drop rocks in your environment, those should be immediate flags that something's hitting Dropbox, right? If you right. use Microsoft SharePoint for everything and you disallow Dropbox, it could be on the firewall, but it could just be alerts or detections you put in place, right? Especially those it's easy. What I like about this is you can drop, drop, you can block Dropbox API and still allow Dropbox. Absolutely. You know? Yep. So. Yep. Yep. But yeah, so I mean, there, there's a lot there, but again, these breakdowns are awesome to kind of talk through from a, a hunting perspective and visibility perspective about what you can see. Cool, so we have you know, a few more minutes left. We'll, we'll jump into the next article. Uh, this is from Bleeping Computer, centered around US Health Department warns of Venus ransomware targeting healthcare orgs. This is just industry specific attacks. Um, healthcare has always been one targeted in the United States. Um, there's been numerous and numerous uh, incidents and news reports of healthcare organizations going down due to ransomware or targeted attacks. Um, it's really, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a problem in the industry, it's a problem in the space and in cybersecurity. Um, I'll let you kind of get into the specifics of the actual malware, but um, again, it mentions that there's been, you know, dozens of victims since just August. Um, I think once a, an attacker or a, a hacker understands the scope and the ability that, you know, they can kind of, rinse and repeat a lot of the same behaviors across the board for a lot of these these specific industries and verticals and especially for what we know about the healthcare organizations in the space today cybersecurity is is not a high budget item for a lot of these organizations even though there's so much data stored on these machines i mean i, I was in a hospital a couple of years ago as i got into cyber so i was like you know what, let me see something and there was you know i think one or two wi-fi hotspots available and one of them was flagged as uh, I believe like production or whatever they called it in, internally. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, all of their data was streaming over this, this visible Wi-Fi hotspot and all the computers are connected, all the, 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 the patient information and all the HIPAA information. So they're, they're getting better. Um, a lot of these organizations are antiquated, not a lot of new talent coming in, not a lot of capabilities from a budget perspective. Um, I know it's a fight for a lot of the CISOs and, and management to get better, better visibility, but again, with, with some of the issues with customer data, patient data, having the ability to have visibility, but also segment, it's a big undertaking, right? So yeah, if you want to get into to kind of the, the, 
the deep dive of the the actual malware in Venus and, and the ransomware. Yeah, so uh, some things to really consider that I think is interesting about Venus is one is there's no associated data leak site associated. So you know a lot of the ransomware that's been around for a long time that's you know I would say more mature ransomware. They seem to now fall into that double extortion. Like we'll steal your data, we'll encrypt your data, and then we'll say, well, you have to pay either way because we're going to, you know, publicly disclose your data, and if you want your data back, you know, you have to pay to decrypt it. They don't seem to do that. Um, they seem to just stick with the old school. Let's just encrypt the data and make people pay for it. And then also how they're kind of getting in. It seems like most of their access historically, it's just been taking advantage of remote services like RDP that's exposed publicly and able to log in. So that that being said, kind of like what I mentioned earlier, it doesn't sound like, you know, when you talk about phishing is an initial access for these guys. If it is, it's really just those web page scams for credential stealing, right? Because they're coming back in through legitimate credentials and getting in that way, or they're brute forcing or doing whatever you, you know, you do on the edge when you think you have a way to access the network. So things just to look at, I think that are important is, you know, this is a common thing people kind of look at, but every business is dependent on on how you look at this. But like the off-hour remote connections, mm -hmm. right? You know, like there's standard business for, for some places. I mean, you know, hospitals, I'm sure they're 24-7, but, you know, the staff that would be remotely connecting in that has these types of privileges, um, would they be 24-7 as well? You know, those types of things. And obviously putting two-factor on that kind of stuff is really, really good, especially right. against them. But the Venus, you know, we have a hunt collection in Hunter, um, so if you haven't gotten to cyborgsecurity.com and signed in or signed up for a Hunter account, there is community stuff with the Venus ransomware. And this, some of the community stuff to kind of mention that is free available is, you know, looking at the BCD edits. Um, that's an activity that the ransomware uses, deletion of shadow copies, which is shared across most ransomware. They also, you know, do a lot of delayed execution. So we see the, how they delay execution using ping and other things. Um, you know, that's a community package available that people can go and check out. So just, uh, you know, a couple things. And obviously we have a few other packages. If you're, you know, a customer guard, you can, you can dig into as well, but at least we talk about what they are. So you get an idea um, of what's going on there. So, you know, kind of a, I would say not the most mature ransomware, but you know, people are only going to mature as far as you push them and they seem to be doing quite well, just doing what they're doing. Yep, exactly. I mean, it, it's successful in their eyes. So they don't need to update the behaviors or tactics or techniques or, Really, what they're doing because they're they're getting the result that they're looking for, right? And right. So any way you can disrupt that across that particular flavor of ransomware or malware allows you to get some coverage and some some breathing room to be able to protect your environment a little bit better. So if if yeah, we can put more, go ahead. I would say I, I don't know if you're ready to jump or if you have more to say, but you go ahead. No, I was just going to say like the better opportunities you can hunt for these type of things and protect yourself and they're less successful over time across in, excuse me across organizations it's really kind of a, a together is better type of story right so if if we can get this type of information in the hands of these analysts and these these people doing this work it allows you to kind of block their success and you can protect maybe maybe they won't try it as much across the board anymore because they're not having the successful results that they thought they were going to so that was, that was just my kind of soapbox <laughs> last comment on that yeah um yeah we can move on to the next one and last one for the yeah week. so the last one I, I picked because you know it's it's always interesting to me it I, I have a tie back to you know past experience too but basically it says microsoft blames and this is from the hacker news microsoft blames russian hackers for prestige ransomware attacks on ukraine and poland 
we covered prestige before, I believe. Um, we do have a, a hunt package collection for this as well. Same kind of layout as we did for Venus, but some additional things associated with that. But really the, the, the highlights when we talked about prestige before were, you know, it targeted Poland and supporting countries of Poland. It leveraged already obtained domain admin creds. So we kind of talked about before, what was interesting about that was how long were they compromised before this, you know, act, action or, you know, impact was, was pulled or targeted. So they're probably already compromised, kind of laying the weight technique. And then the three methods for deployment that they used, which was interesting, and this is obviously because they had the access they did, was either schedule tasks running from the admin share, PowerShell command that's kicking off processes from the admin share, or they distribute it via group policy with the domain, you know, dropping on the domain controller and pushing the ransomware out that way. Those are like the unique techniques that people normally weren't seeing from the other ransomware groups. Uh, but Microsoft, you know, after this attack occurred, they linked it back to Russian Sandworm, which is a kind of a known APT type group. There's different names depending on, you know, who's covering them. Um, but they were responsible for the power grid attack in Ukraine in, in 2016, you know, called Indestroyer. Um, it had a couple other names like Crash Override. And so what was interesting is they were, when I was digging into this more, there was apparently a new version of Industry that came out that coincided with the attack in Ukraine. I did not know this. And, and it was Industry 2, but it was foiled. They didn't actually get the attack off the ground. But what was interesting when we talk about these ransomwares and data wipers was when they actually set up the Industry 2 attack, they believe that the, the initial breach happened in February, which kind of coincided with the Russian invasion of Ukraine. But the malware is set to detonate in April 8th of 2022. Wasn't able to detonate because it was caught. But then there was a scheduled task to run Caddy Wiper 10 minutes after to destroy all the forensic artifacts. So it was kind of interesting where when you look at the use of ransomware or wipers, for people to be using it to cover tracks for other attacks they did. You know, I haven't really seen that technique utilized. But obviously, it's a very powerful technique if you really are going to do something really innovative from an attack perspective, and you don't want researchers or people to discover what you did. You know, what a great way to just, you know, basically erase what you did, hide your footsteps that way. Because I know, you know, when we looked at how to cover your tracks, there's always that one artifact that's, you know, behind, and it was showed, you know, S-delete. It's a program where you can securely delete anything, yep. but when it's running, you can't S-delete itself. Right. Yeah, right. Because, yeah, right. Because it's, it's, it's like, it, it, you know, it's kind of productive. It, it sees itself like I can't delete myself because I've got to run. So there's always that like lingering artifact. Well, in this case, when you're using a wiper, maybe you can see a wiper is run, but that doesn't mean much to you because everything else is gone. That to me was uh, was a fascinating thing. I mean, obviously tie back to Russia. We know there's, you know, nation state capabilities here and then there's some other things, but it was something to consider when you're looking at things uh, for you know, data restoration isn't the most important thing from a business when it comes to just defensively. What if you can't figure out what they did so you prevent it, you know, in the future? Right. Yeah. Covering your tracks with ransomware, that's a really interesting step, especially if you don't have the visibility from a logging perspective to see yep. the steps that they took. I mean, it, it's kind of like clearing your tracks, right? That's a really interesting way to use already established techniques and behaviors to cover tracks. And again, with ransomware and these data wipers, I mean, there's a very clear methodology if somebody's using a data wiper, they don't care about your data or recovering data or anything. There's probably another goal in mind when they're using those type of systems, right? And typically that's gonna be a nation state type of actor. I think activist or, or somebody that's 
you know, wanting to hack a company financial for financial gain is probably not going to use a data wiper. Or right. they might use a combination of two to scare the crap out of somebody if it's not a organizational critical asset. They might wipe a couple things just to show value and then, you know, ransom the other things in the organization to get some access to that that monetary gain. But these methods I mean, it's it's a scary world out there. Every time we talk about these articles and the things going on in the space, there's no reprieve for these organizations that are trying to fight off these attackers, right? So it's really just about having good visibility and understanding your your threat landscape. Because yeah, you bring you brought up a a really good point that kind of like rang something in my head. And you know, you were talking about like, well, obviously, I hope hope the logging is really good where you're centralizing it because you know if it's wiping it, how do you know what happened, kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And I've always kind of had in my head the well you know, log what you can remotely, it's affordable and makes sense, but you should have extra logging locally. So if something does happen, you can go to that machine and then pull those local logs for additional information. And in this instance, you kind of have to be, you know, thinking further ahead on what do we really need to be collecting um, remotely versus kind of my previous strategy. And so maybe it's, it's, you know, I know when people come up with their system configurations for what they want to log, they don't really visit that that often. But it might right. be a good process to maybe that's something that should be visited more often as far as are we collecting all the right things? Do we have the right visibility? Because mm -hmm. I know even when we write things and we use Sysmon a lot because Sysmon's a great tool for visibility, yep. you know, we don't just say Sysmon collect everything, but we're constantly adjusting based on our content. What is it that we need visibility on to be able to find this technique? And you got to have that kind of agility, I think, when it comes to data collection, especially as a tax adapt. Yep, absolutely. Chime in on that. Yeah, that's that's a great point. I think that's it for the week. Sounds good. Yeah. All right. Well, I just want to thank everyone for joining our Out of the Woods Threat Hunting Podcast. Uh, looking forward to syncing back up with everyone next week. With that, let's close out the top five threat hunting headlines for the week of November 14th, 2022. All right. Everybody have a great week. Happy hunting. Talk to you later. Yeah. Thanks for listening to the Out of the Woods Podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you heard this podcast so you never miss an episode. For more information or to connect with Cyborg Security, check us out online at www.cyborgsecurity.com and follow us on social media. We'll see you next time.